Hi, this is Brennan Davis from Bedrock Games and the Bedrock Blog, and I'm here with Joel Clark, and we're here to talk about Heroes Shed No Tears for another episode of Wuxia Workshop. This is um, uh, a film by Choi Yuen, but it's based on a Gu Long story, and it was released in 1980. And what you just heard was the introductory music to the film, which I included in this broadcast. We don't normally do this, but I included it because that music is very important to the film and very important to the themes of the movie and it just kind of <clears throat> excuse me it just kind of cuts to the chase and gets to the heart of the heart of the heart of the story so uh so Joel this was your first time watching this film and and I apologize for my cough just now but I I want to I want to keep plowing ahead so we don't have to redo the intro <laughs> scene um but uh uh what what was your what was your take on this film like how did you react to it the first time you saw it Oh, oh man. Okay, so I've only seen it one time too, and uh, to give you an idea, I'm definitely going to see it again. <clears throat> By the way, it is it is flu season. I think we're both sick, so there will be some amount of coughing. Well, actually, I'm not sick. You're sick. I just made the bad decision of eating a Nutrigrain <laughs> bar before oh. sitting down to do this, and a stray piece of seed skin got into my throat. So I'm fine oh, now. Sucks. Okay. Well, moving on. Um, my take on it. Uh, ooh. You know, it's. It's okay. I, I I think I start a lot of these in a very positive way. I'm like, it's really good. Yeah. And I don't want to be. I, I don't want to sell this movie short. It's not that it's very good. It's it's extraordinarily good, and it's rich. It's a. Uh, it's not dull. It it's got this really great pacing where you really are only seen or only get to see the most impactful scenes, but it doesn't lose any cohesion for that. There's strong characterization from all the characters. There's a really immersive and interesting plot. There's a lot of really intense fight scenes, and there's a lot of variety in the fight scenes. There's these beautiful, beautiful, like, the visual elements of this movie are really gorgeous. The way they set up scenes, the places and sets they use, the the costuming is all really eye-catching, and it consistently finds new ways to draw your interest and attention. And it's got such a fantastic depth to it uh, th- this is this is one of the movies that I would it, it's in my little um, my little winner circle of like you know quadruple gold star super media along with stuff like uh, Mervyn Peaks um, uh, Gormenghast and um, the writings of Thomas Ligotti and like stuff like that where it's not just about like reading or watching or whatever at one time this is a movie that rewards your investment and and that's kind of my my initial impression and my ongoing impression as I was watching it was I need to watch this again because I want to analyze it deeper. I want to know more. Yeah. I want to watch this with the knowledge I have now again. This movie is like the godfather in that it's something that you immediately want to watch again as soon as you're done watching it. Not just because it's entertaining, but because it's just so deep and full and uh, it's, it's got a it's got a great density to it 
that really makes it satisfying to watch, and I'm certain satisfying to rewatch. No, and I think That's you hit on it. you hit on all the crucial things too. The the emotional weight of the movie, the the visual appeal of it. It, it it's a Choi Yuen film, and he's very good with uh, with the visuals. And, and this is one that you can really see that. Um, and 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 again, it has it has like you know just this this depth to it, and and it's also the kind of movie like everybody I've shown it to has liked it. My mom even liked it. Do you know what I mean? Like. <laughs> Like I, I, I saw it with my mom one night and she looked at me and she was like, oh, that was a really good movie. And that's not her typical reaction to these kind of films. You know, you know, usually if I watch a film like this with a family member, they're humoring me. And yeah, and so, you know, uh, I just think it, uh, it's, it's, it kind of hits you in the gut when you see it. Uh, oh, yeah. when, when I first saw it, and again, we've covered it here on the podcast like three times and I've covered it on my YouTube channel like twice. So this is, and I've covered it on the blog too. So this is a film that gets a lot of coverage at, 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 on, you know, from, you know, from me here. Uh, <laughs> and so here we're going to talk about it in a slightly different way than we normally have. Um, but I do want to give my recap of the plot, which I, which is just, you know, this is, again, this is just a little snippet I wrote down. Um, and I probably used the same snippet the last time I talked about it. <clears throat> but, uh, but basically it's based on a book by Gulong. And the story is, following his master's instructions, little Gao, played by Alexander Fushung, descends down the mountain at a crucial time with a tear-stained sword and finds himself in the middle of a great rivalry between two powerful heroes. Now, there's a lot more to the story than that. This is sort of the setup. But what we find is one of the heroes, and again, I'm going to spoil some things, has this advisor who's this really slimy villain, just a criminal mastermind. Who has helped yeah, he's him? Films like Moriarty, he's really good. Yeah, and and he and he helps he helps the character of uh, Sima Chao Chun, who's this this big hero in the in the movie, uh, to 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 sort of extend his network of influence by he, he basically is controlling like different escort agencies and different clans and stuff and 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 expanding his power. And his rival is the leader of Braveheart Hall, who's played by Ku Fung, and his name is Zhu Meng. And, and, and they're both very similar and both very different heroes. The, uh, the Sima Chao Chun character is this powerful, unbeatable guy who's a little bit dim, right? Like he's kind of an idiot in this film, I think, is the way they, they depict him. And, and Zhu Meng is this passionate hero who is like a manly man, but he, he, he adores dance and gracefulness. And he falls in love with this woman named Graceful or Diewu. Different points in the story, she's called different things. Um, butterfly but he falls in love with her and little Gao befriends Zhumong and they become sworn brothers and then the Dong Lai character uses that to create sort of a not not just create a rift between them but completely destroy them in the hopes of paving the way for Sima Chao Chun and as things come to a head uh, Sima Chao Chun realizes what Dong Lai is doing and he uh he resists him. He's humiliated and defeated. And then he and uh, Zhu Meng have this incredible duel. Uh, but it's against the backdrop of this incident where Die Wu cuts off her legs or cuts mm. off one of her legs. And uh, um, and so she's sort of dying in the background as this duel is unfolding. And 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 the duel comes to an end when she when she is like on the cusp of death. And then there's and then the and then the film sort of culminates with a big showdown between all of the characters and Zhu Dong Lai, and it's a, I mean, and I'm I'm glossing over so much, 
but okay, there, there's because that's if that was all of the movie, that would still be a really good movie. But in addition to that, there's this this other subplot running with the assassin with the with the wooden box, yeah. uh, which has its own emotional resonance, and it fully pays off and realizes during the runtime of the movie. And like, there's there's so much going on with like the development of the villain, and like because you get to see more and more of how he is intertwined with this plot and you see his development and his his movements as a villain behind the scenes and his little victories and his his little setbacks and things there's there's a lot happening in this movie it's like an opera and all of it is harmonized in this spectacularly unified way that i don't even know how i'd approach like making something of of this like scale and complexity and depth that is so watchable like i wasn't in a few, it, the movie does do one thing that makes it a little hard to follow, but actually it's not bad structurally when you get right down to it, because it will show you the outcome of something first. It'll show you this thing, and you're like, what the hell just happened? And then immediately it will slow down a little and back up just a touch and explain that thing to you. Yeah. That happens three or four times in the movie. And I, you don't see that a lot. That's like a kind of a Quentin Tarantino thing. You might see that in a, in, as far as a Western movie, mm-hmm. but it is, it is like perfected in this movie and and initially when i didn't realize that's what they were doing i was lost a lot and i started becoming frustrated but then as i realized they were consistently going to do that i was like oh okay mm. so i'm just supposed to enjoy the surprise along with the characters i get it now so yeah. that was a neat, that was a neat little technique i thought i mean Troy yuet is a great director and again at some point we're going to have to do intimate confessions of a chinese courtesan because that is probably the best example of just what a good director he is in my opinion um the title often throws people but it, it really it, it, it you once you see the opening scene you'll know exactly what i'm talking about and i've learned one thing about wushu movies from this whole experience with you is that i will never judge one by its title yeah no that's 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 a very good point now now i will say the title is not misleading the title is indicative of the kind of content of that film but it's not just this like exploitative sort of you know film that you know uses sex to kind of sell itself. It's it 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 really is a, a it really handles it in a way that's like um, just it takes the subject very seriously, uh, you know. And the and it and it's and it's um it's it's one of his most beautifully shot films. Um, there's a couple of other ones from his earlier years that are particularly well shot, and that's that's one of the one of the best ones. Um, but this is another one, and this is later on, obviously, and so he does things a little bit differently. But like I said, like you were saying, you can see those techniques, those little techniques that he uses. Mm-hmm. And and again, we don't want to oversell it because this is an older movie. This is a 1980 Shaw Brothers film. It's, it's all done in sets and stuff, and so sometimes. Yeah, some Oh, I recognize right. some of those sets, by the way. What was that? <laughs> I recognize almost every set, by the way. At yeah. this point, been like, okay, I know where they got this one first. Yeah. Oh, that's the pavilion for, that they use in every movie, and that's yep. this. And oh, they just move this around, and yeah, you 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 do start to notice all of the structures. Um, but a lot of times, what happens is people will be imagining a film from the '90s or the 2000s or even today when I describe a movie like this, <coughs> and and it's and, and so I don't want to mislead anybody. It still is an older film. But no, by the standards, that. it's 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 really good. It's, it looks visually very 
you know, it's carefully like not only the shots carefully framed and everything, but like you can tell he like the the outfit coordination is very carefully selected to match the drapes and match the tone of the wood and like everything is just sort of thought of almost like it's a painting. Oh, and also speaking of of the sets and the set design, even though I did recognize them, they have very distinctly unified the character of different areas in this movie with the characters that inhabit them, mm-hmm. such as that there's an there's a a, like a strong through line that connects them in your mind. There's like an emotional resonance that that brings the sets to life as characters. So even though they were working on what is clearly a very limited budget and they were reusing sets from other movies, or maybe they, they originated this movie and they reused them later, they still were able to bring forth the, uh, the actual environments as they existed within the context of the movie so far forward in your mind that they have the same kind of um, that they they have a sort of impact on me as an audience member that I usually reserve purely for characters. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I know where they are now, and so you're never lost in the movie, and you always kind of know why a scene is set in the place it is set. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to even the, again. It's not a it's not an '90s or a later movie. So you know if if you're looking for. Uh, flaws in it that like a, a more modern viewpoint would see. Yeah, okay, you know their sets, you know their map paintings, you know that. But that's like judging like Sinbad, the Golden Voyage of Sinbad, by those standards. You yeah, that's exactly that. what it is. That's exactly the right comparison. Um, this is this is like a like the Shaw Brothers movies have almost a golden age of Hollywood look to them. Do you know what I mean? They yeah. got like that 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 when like all the sets in the studios were were really big and. You know, and 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 it and it uses it uses the set structure that it has very well, and um, and and I think and and I think that a lot of times that's more evocative. And again, we're, we're going to talk about gaming anyway, so I'm going to bring it to gaming here. Um, you know, one of my favorite set, my favorite setting is Ravenloft, and the favorite the thing that sort of drew me to Ravenloft was the artwork of Stephen <coughs> Fabian, and the, the artwork of Stephen Fabian is not realistic looking. It looks very stylistic. And it also kind of has like a fogginess that you might see in like an old Universal or old Hammer movie, and and those are you know those are done on sets a lot of them, but the the sets often add to this sense of 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 storytelling. Do you know what I mean? In a way that really being there doesn't. And there's and and I and I like gritty movies that are shot outside, perfectly fine. But I feel like a lot of times we've kind of thrown the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to sets. And people just aren't accustomed to them. But if you, if you are open to the effect that a set can have on you, it creates kind of a sense of theater that's lost if you're just filming it, it outdoors all the time. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and that's one of the reasons for the operatic vibe of this movie is that th- there is a certain kind of uncanny valley artificiality that you do detect because of the use of scenes and matte paintings. But it doesn't really detract from it. It's, it's an element that they leverage to, to the advantage of the movie. Yeah. Um, actually I've got a, a small divergence based on a uh, technical limitations as applies to gaming in the terms of video games. Uh, I'm going to bring up, uh, you brought up the old hammer Brothers movies, uh, silent Hill does something similar. The technological limitations of early PlayStation two games were such that they couldn't fully map the environment. So they mm-hmm. had this like fog that encased the town that hid the load screen. So like right past that fog, there were these choppy loading lines, but you oh, didn't see that as a player. What you saw was this 
mysterious pall of fog around you that concealed everything. And the designers of that game knew to use your lack of information to make it more horrifying. So that limitation actually made the game feel claustrophobic in a way that's really conducive to the horror atmosphere. Yeah. So you can do that. You can well, you can use your illusion. Well, like for example, I'm looking at the scene right now when uh, Sima Chao Chun goes to Braveheart Hall when it's in ruins. Do you know the oh, scene that I'm yeah. thinking of? And, yeah, I know. And and like the whole place is in ruins, and there's like a a really beautiful sunset that's obviously not a real sunset in the background. Yeah. And there's this and there's this blind beggar, I think, who kind of you know sort of very uh, very uh, dramatically tells him the story of what happened to Braveheart Hall and how. Um, uh, Cleats, the, uh, the 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 guy with the the funny hair, uh, sacrificed himself in the big battle, and uh, scalp. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. He they, he frequently has that that setup uh, in in movies that he's in. That actor, I don't know why, um, but that scene that wouldn't work in a real setting. Do you know what I mean? Like that, like the fact that it's a set is what makes that scene so gorgeous. Um, and it also, I I feel like. The sets can actually immerse you more once you buy into the staginess of them. Do you know what I mean? Like it's a, it, yeah. It's kind of like how you know a cartoon can sometimes draw you in in a way that a live action film can't. Absolutely. You know? Yeah, it's it's that sort of effect. The la- the the surrealness of it, it's dreamlike in a way, and it kind of pulls you in more. It is, and it makes it. It, whenever you are able to control the environment with that degree of detail and specificity, and you can do that in a cartoon, you can do that with a set, you make it a stronger element that a, a, a writer or a director or, or someone who's using that visual media can use to make a part of the story uh, like obvious to you. Like To, to give another example, um, the, the movie Akira and the manga that it's based off of, the, the the setting of that, the environment of that, and the fact that the artist could control it with 100% uh, capability made it feel like this huge, impersonal, industrial nightmare of a place to live. That's And you can take pictures of a city, but you can't really do that unless you have a set. Yeah. You can't really... Uh, like can Contrast, for example, Die Hard, which was uh, shot on location a lot in an actual building... Uh, I think that's I might be wrong there, but it it looked like an actual building versus like Dread, the more modern uh, Judge Dread movie, where they have a bunch of sets that are are made artificially to look very much like an industrial hellscape. Yeah. One of them feels like a nightmarish tower of a distant and hideous dystopian future, and one of them just feels like a modern office building. Yeah. And that that difference in tone is only possible because you have the ability to control the environment of the set. Yeah. which you can't get if you're just like just filming a city. Uh, another good example would be the the 92 Dracula film which used a lot of sets yeah. and, you know and, and and that and that's probably the apex of like what you can achieve with 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 using sets. And I think at at their best Shaw Brothers movies they get into that territory of you know it just it just really creates atmosphere. Now, one of the things I wanted to go over too is I wanted to get your reaction to different parts of this film. Because again, yeah, yeah. I've I've given my opinion on this a million times, so I don't think people are probably bored with tears <laughs> to my thoughts. But what 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 did you feel about the the leg chopping scene? Let's start there because that's one of the more uh, <coughs> striking scenes in the film. It is. It is a. It is like a song and dance number, which oh. I wasn't prepared for to start it off with. And actually, you know what? Because a lot of people might not have watched the movie before. Why don't I explain what happens in the scene, and then you give me yeah. Let's um, let's give them the whole. 
thing first, and then I'll give you my reaction. So, so there's, I mean, there's a whole lot of stuff that happens leading up to this, but basically, uh, Little Gao and 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 Jumung are both invited by Dong Lai to the same banquet, uh, using using Diewu as as kind of the bait, basically. Getting, I think she invites both of them, or uh, she invites Little Gao and the uh, and somebody informs Jumung that. That, that she will be there basically and the whole purpose of it is to get them to both be there and to 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 have it revealed that little Gao has slept with the woman that Jumong is in love with and just destroy them all in one sweep there and 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 when Diewu realizes that she's been used graceful when graceful realizes that she's been used she she cuts she, she speaks to to little Gao and tells him that she was like you know her love to him was real and then she speaks to Jumung and she asks if he you know like you know she says something to him to the effect of you really admired my legs or something like that and he said yes they're the most graceful legs in the world and she cuts off one of her legs and hands it to Jumung and he freaks out he completely freaks out and she hops away and he runs after her and 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 he's just completely shattered and and then you know little Gao is I think already departed by this point, and and so that's the scene. Uh, you know what, what's your you know what was your reaction? Whew. Okay, so I, I think I um I compared it to Hitchcock whenever I was writing it, when I was uh, watching it. You know, Hitchcock has this famous speech where he's like, if the audience knows there's a bomb under the table, but the characters don't, they're just playing cards or whatever. The tension in the scene is mounting for the audience, no matter what is happening above the table. Mm-hmm. And, like, that's the kind of feel you go into with this scene. It starts off, like I said, with a musical number, which is a full-on, like, musical number. There's a song, dance, everything. It's very beautiful and theatrical. But while you're watching that, the setup of the scene that that, that predates that by just a few seconds is all these characters that you know are in this really dangerous and explosive, like, web of relationships slowly coming into the, into the scene. So you've got the mass manipulator... Then you have both the people he's manipulated and the person he's manipulating them with. And so even though the scene itself, like the, the music part of that scene, is, is it's innocent and beautiful without that context. With that context, you're watching the whole thing with this really powerful apprehension because you like these characters and you know that they've been put on a collision course by this manipulative bad guy. So the whole time you're watching the music scene, and it goes for a while, the tension is drawn out like a knife. So that was really fun to start off with also it's a very beautiful musical number yeah and that music i believe i know that the opening is is sung by jenny tseng and i think mm. she sang that song too but i'm not 100 percent sure yeah I'm, I'm willing to bet that i i missed wherever the the lyrics of that song linked into what was going on with the movie uh this is one of the most things that's gonna re- really reward a repeat viewing because i'm sure that if i watch it gonna be like oh i get you yeah. Mm-hmm. I see song. I see how clever you were. Well, and another interesting thing about the song is the song is actually uh, Jenny Tseng is um, Alexander Fushung's wife or was. So, oh, wow. uh, so you know, he played little Gao. So it's it's an interesting, you know, uh, you know, part of the film. Um, but yeah, that scene that scene really struck me when I first saw it. I was uh, number one like c- martial arts movies. We were talking about this before. Y- I think you pointed it out uh, mutilation is. Oh, yeah. A common thing in, in kung fu movies and in martial arts movies. And, you know, the one-armed swordsman, all kinds of things like that. Uh, but And a lot of times they're sort of trying to one-up each other, like who can be more extreme in the, you know, in the, in the limb-chopping area. But, but this was pretty, I mean, this was 
quite up there. I felt, um, and and also the, it wasn't, it wasn't just a meaningless, I'm being stubborn and I'm cutting off my leg. It was, it was a really deep moment in the movie where this is like the thing that embodies what she is. And she cuts it off because Jumung's admiration for it is sort of the thing that's causing all of this conflict between, do you know what I mean? It's, 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 to, to put it in the term, really fancy sounding terms, it is a shocking externalization of the emotional state of the characters. Like it, it shows very physically and grotesquely the emotional wound that is being dealt to them in this scene. And it's mm-hmm. an amazing culmination. Yeah. So that's a, that's how I judge it. It, it. And it is shocking because she straight up grabs a sword and cuts off her leg and then she not only cuts it off, but she like hops bleeding out of there and crawls herself up the stairs. The, the guy holding her, and she hands it to the guy. He's holding it, and he's got this moment of just absolute, like, not even being present shell shock. Yeah. He snaps out of it and runs after her, like, completely losing his composure. It's it's startling. Yeah. That's what it is. It's a very startling scene. Goof, this is probably one of the best goofing roles you'll ever see. He's good in anything he's in. He's sort of like a, he's like a really solid supporting character actor. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. he plays villains. He does all kinds of things. He can be anything in a movie. But this, this role to me is, he, he is like the thing that really carries the emotional weight of this movie. And that scene's one where you see it. And, and I think another thing about this scene is, I mean, it, it could produce laughter. Like, you see her cut off her leg, and then she picks up the thing, and she hops over. And I'm sure people do laugh when they see that for the first time sometimes. But I didn't laugh when I first saw that. I was just hit by the weight of the scene. And and I think that, you know, it, it takes something that, that, again, might be sort of just sort of seen as this is an extreme thing we're doing for effect, or this is meant to be shocking. And it really, it, it, it somehow has all this emotional weight to it that... uh and again, I think the Goofung performance has a lot to it. The, the the patience that they have sort of setting up this whole scene has, has quite a bit to do with it as well. Um, oh yeah, because it's the culmination of everything you felt and seen in the scene so far. Yeah. So it's not just that this we cut to her like getting cut off. And in, I think in a less skilled Wuxi movie, you would have seen like this just as a flashback, you know, like, and then she cut off her leg. Ah, and then this happened. I see that a lot in Wuxia. And this didn't do it. It took it took its time, which and again, by the way, before that, for the rest of the movie, before that, there's a lot of really big leaps in cuts between events that give you really impactful scenes. This one stops that trend and slows it way down. So your your attention is fully invested in this scene because you're like, well, why are we still watching this? Why isn't this getting jumped over? What's so important about this? Yeah. Again, masterful construction of the pacing of the movie. Yeah, I I, I agree. I I agree, and I think um, I think I think the 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 next not the next scene, but the the next related scene to this, where uh, where where we then have <laughs> Dae Wu dying and Jumong caring oh. for her. Uh, but it follows on the heel of uh, Sima Chao Chun confronting Dong Lai and then getting attacked by all of Dong Lai's minions and being kicked out of his own sect. And and essentially, the the thing. So the thing that Dong Lai is doing to all these men is he's trying to defeat them without even having to kill them. He doesn't. He would kill them happily. He doesn't care. You know, he he's shown to be a complete sort of merciless, cruel person. But he's not going to expend any more energy than he needs to. And he feels that by 
by doing what he did to uh, to Zhumeng and Little Gao, he's effectively defeated them. They're, they're no longer who they were, so they might as well be dead. And then he well, kind of hit on Little Gao, didn't he? On top of that, what? He also put a hit out on Little Gao, didn't he? On top yeah, of that, yeah, he did. He, he had the uh, the man with the box. He sent him after him. That's what the whole subplot with the the opium smoking master is, where he gets the uh, he has <coughs> he has like the special document, and he needs to get it from him so he can send the man with the box after him. Um, it's a very it's a very it's funny because this is Cho Yuan's known for sort of sometimes getting confusing with the plot. But this is one where it's like the the richness of the plot is it, it's not ever confusing in that way. It's, yeah, it's not it's, really. Um, and so, uh, but anyways, in in the uh, and so so Sima Chao Chun is you know uh, literally face down in the rain and oh, doesn't God, yeah yeah and and he and he has no confidence in himself anymore and he, he just basically realizes his whole empire is a lie that it's all been built by this dong lai guy who's been using him and he could have pretty much basically what dong lai is doing is he he's creating an empire and he needs a face for that empire and sima chao chun was the the hero that he needed to serve that role but it could be anybody else and so later in the movie little gao volunteers himself as as being the new sima chao chun for that reason but what ends up happening is sima chao chun confronts uh Zhumeng in a you know in a in a uh, uh as diewu is dying in the background up on a up on like a cliff area there's like a pavilion cliff or something that she's dying at and and it's just this super dramatic scene where Zhumeng is trying to get all of his men to kill sima chao chun cuz sima chao chun and his organization are responsible for killing all their people for making all of their 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 mothers and sisters into prostitutes and all these things that have you know befallen them and none of the men can strike Sima Chao Chun because he's so pathetic and he doesn't have yeah. he's, he's not even, you know, barely holding his weapon. And and, and so the, so he looks to one of his uh, Zhumeng looks to one of his heroes and he's like, you know, you've always been and And this is a point where the translation gets funky in the movie. The subtitle reads, you're such a hunk. But what it's really yeah. supposed to he's basically saying, you're such a tough guy, like you're such a tough hero. You know, why can't you kill him? You know, yeah, I saw the you're such a hunk. And I read it to mean like that he was like a one of those like walking bricks where he's really strong but dumb yeah. that's kind of how the guy was portraying him like he didn't there wasn't a lot of nuance in this guy he was real straightforward so i think that uh that that maybe the the term they're trying to translate something on the lines of big muscular idiot yeah no i think i think that's what the, i think something along those lines but it definitely wasn't hunk as we would use the term yeah i think that uh that one that one went a little south but i think that the uh but I think that the um, but that scene is just so unbelievable. That is like I, 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 I in fact, I do sometimes I'll just go to that scene and just watch that scene because that's like <laughs> the heart of the movie. Like that's the that's the moment of the film where you get the like the scene with Diego cutting off her leg is a big sort of dramatic payoff scene. But this is like everything that the movie is built towards. I mean, there's there's stuff that comes after. But this is the to me, this is the heart of the movie. It is. Yeah, you, you pegged it. This is the, the scene that gives you kind of the thesis for this movie, too, which is our identity is based on what we do, not like just our laurels. Yeah. Not thought we were, but what we are doing now. So that that, that kind of hit me really close to home, too, because I'm just like I've, I've had to fight with depression a lot in my life. And a lot of times you just come to this point where you're like, you know what? I'm getting through today. <laughs> I'm I'm just gonna keep struggling 
that's my decision. And, like, that's how they get themselves back. That's how they bring themselves back from this despondency they've both been cast into. And they they turn it around. It's it's a scene where they kind of redeem themselves to each other. Well, and what's interesting... Oh, go ahead. Well, even though they're bitter enemies, they're, like, allies and friends after that, so... Well, they they survive because of the fight like they because they're able to still fight each other so he's basically says you know you're still Sima Chaochun I'm still Zhumong you know this sword is still good right I have my sword you have your sword let's you know you know you know they're still both fighters basically they're still both swordsmen who can uh uh you know and 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 and, and again that's contrasted with Diewu who she's lost her leg she cannot dance anymore. She is no longer a dancer. So she is effectively dead in the movie, and that's why she dies. Do you know what I mean? I mean, obviously, the reason she dies is massive blood loss. But, uh, but, but I mean, <laughs> yeah. extracting her leg. But, but I mean, the, the, and, and this is a theme that is like explicitly called out of the book, where there's a poem in it. It says something to the effect of the dancer dances, the swordsman fights, the, the musician plays. You know, it's just one of these things where you are what you do. And the moment you cease to be whatever it is you do, then you, you no longer exist. It's 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 an interesting sort of you know reflection for uh, for a film like this, and um, and yeah. So I don't know. Were there any other scenes or anything that you wanted to talk about before we get into the gaming context of the movie? Ooh, uh, let me think. I really liked. Um, I, I, we haven't really talked much about the guy with the box, but I really liked his character a lot. Uh, I liked him as a a rival who is not villainous and is not necessarily always going to be a rival or in an adversarial role. I, uh, I liked his cool box because it's filled with the essence of 13 weapons. And I don't like, I don't know if that's something that translates super well, but he could basically turn it into whatever weapon he wanted. It seemed like. So, so that was <laughs> I'll talk, let's talk about, so number one, that's, this is where I think the James Bond influence comes in, in the movie, because you have this, this device that is it's like right out of a spy movie almost and gulong has a lot of these kinds of things and this is in the in the book i can't remember exactly how it functions in the book but my impression of it has always been that if i recall it's got a lot of moving components in it and a lot of parts and if you're sufficiently intelligent and sufficiently agile you can or dexterous you can put together a weapon on the fly to respond to pretty much any foe that you're facing and so that's that's why he wants to give the box to uh, to little Gao because little Gao is uh, is nimble enough and smart enough to do it. So that's the uh, that that was the I believe his reasoning there. Um, but it's basically just an oblong box, and you never really see what they do. You just know that he manipulates a bunch of little like gears or something in it, and he pulls out he pulls out the weapon that he needs. Um, and so it's you know it's it's not you know you you kind of have to leave it to your imagination to know to figure out what's actually going on inside the box. Yeah, at one point they open it and there's just like this blinding flash of like color and light inside, and the little gal like collapses. I, I thought it was supposed to be something magical. So that was a tra- no. I think that was a trap he set on the box. So oh, people, I you know, get it. Okay, no, I'm dumb. You're, you're right. That probably was just a trap. Okay, and I think that you're right about the James Bond influence. I think it was a deeper, just British influence, though, because remember that scene where uh, he's trying to give the box to Little Gown, and he's like, "Okay, you can leave here. But you have to pass this test." And he whips out the teapot with the two, um, with the two, uh, or the the two teapots and the two cups, and he's like, "You have to choose which one of these to drink from. One of them is poisoned." That's a, that's a, a study in uh, Scarlet. That's from uh, or yeah. Crimson from yeah. 
And it's all, they did it in Princess Bride, too. But, like, that's a Sherlock Holmes thing. It's straight out from Sherlock Holmes. So, yeah, I think they're, uh, I think the British influence, the, the British literary influence on that character is pretty clear. Yeah, but, no, yeah. yeah, I think you're right about that. I think that that, that definitely, because it's, it's, it is, it is like the same exact situation as studying Scarlet. Um, and, and I think that, uh, that was, uh, the, 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 the character, the character who has the box is played by, uh, Yu, Yu Hua. And, um, I'm probably going to mispronounce his name, but I think his character's name is Zhao Lei Suo or something to that effect. I, I don't know exactly how it's pronounced, but it translates, I believe, into teardrop or tear stain. And so the way it was explained to me is when you're reading the book, you just keep seeing this name that says tear stain all over, blood stain all over the, all over the, it's, it's a, uh, yeah, I think it's bloody tear, blood stain, something like that. But it's oh, yeah. Don't don't quote me because I don't know Mandarin. Or uh, <laughs> but it's uh, is it Mandarin? I think it is. Um, well, I, I mean, the version we saw, I think was can uh, I think it was Mandarin. I think it was Mandarin. Um, but I think the I think the names on uh the Hong Kong movie database might be the Cantonese versions. I don't know. Jesus. Uh, so, but either way, the the you know it's a, he he's he is a really interesting character. It's also. A really cool role for Yu Hua because this is Yu Hua after he's really been, you know, a veteran actor for a while. If you go back and watch, have you seen Come Drink with Me yet? I don't know if we've seen that. Oh, Christ, I don't remember. Probably not. So, Come Drink with Me is an early Cheng Pei Pei film. We'll probably have to watch it at some point just to cover all of our bases. But <laughs> it's also an early movie that he's in, and he's very young in that film. And the difference between him and that movie and this movie could not be more striking. And it's purely a product of he's just a veteran actor now, and he is so thoroughly owning this role of, as this character. Um, and so, so again, I think that's another reason why this movie really works. A lot of the actors, have, they're really experienced at this stage. You know, like between him, between Gu Feng, and, you know, between uh, Alexander Fushung, who's, you know, at a, at a, at a sort of a physical peak. I, in fact, I think he might have injured himself during this film. I think he broke his leg or something when oh, filming yes. this. Um, and Derek Yi is fabulous as as Zhu Dong Lai. That's a a really good role for Derek Yi, in my opinion. But um, but but yeah. So I don't know any other any other <laughs> scenes or thoughts. God, there's a lot to appreciate in this movie. Uh, no, I will leave uh, with the um, with the caveat that I want to watch it again, and I think that if you. Uh, if you're interested, this is on Amazon Prime. Yeah. You should watch it probably more than once to get a lot out of it. It's definitely one that's that's worth your time and your investment. Yeah, here, so. here's what I'll say. Go to Amazon Prime. Look up Heroes Shed No Tears. Make sure it's the 1980 version because there's another movie called Heroes Shed No Tears that I think came out in the mid-'80s that's a totally different kind of movie. So make sure it's the, the 1980 version by Cho Yuen. And watch the beginning with the music. And if you don't feel like you want to keep watching after that, then fine. Back out. But if you feel intrigued, continue watching. It's it's and, and, and like you said, it's it's on Amazon Prime. So if you have that service, you can watch it there. Um, it's it's a really good movie in my opinion. I watched it like five times after I, I I watched it and then I immediately watched it again and then I watched it the next day and then again and I just kept watching it. Yeah, um, I, I can see that reaction. Like I seriously want to watch it again, and not just because it's dense, but just because it's entertaining. Like a lot of movies that are dense like this tend to drag at certain parts. Yep. There's nothing. There's no fat on this movie. It goes right no. to the heart of every important scene. It skips over everything unnecessary, and it has a powerful unity that makes it so that you're never lost while you're watching it. Like, 
it's really watchable and it's really de- really deep, which is a rare combination. I, yeah, I I think this movie I I watched it again a bunch of times because I wanted to figure out why I was so intrigued by it. Like I couldn't figure out what it was that made me like the movie so much, and so I just wanted to figure that out. Um, but getting into the gaming stuff, did any? I, I don't know. A lot of times when we do these wuxia movies, there's something that's really easy to sort of zo- like zero in on in a gaming context. Like, oh, that would make a great dungeon, or oh, this would make a great adventure concept. This is a little bit more difficult, I think. I think there's a lot that's gameable here, but it's one of the movies that it's, it's one of the reasons why people perceive wuxia as a challenging genre to game because this one relies entirely on the drama and certain things happening between the characters. So I was curious what your thoughts on the gaming of it would be. Well, um, this, this is one of those one of those games that, or one of those shows that I can see why a game like Legends of the Wulin got created based on watching this. Because Legends of the Wulin has a, has a lot to say about how the heroes in the Zhanghu, like the, the relationships that they have and the emotional context of those relationships and how those define a character. And so it, it's difficult to gamify that in the, in the way that it's it's easy to like gamify, like say a dungeon, like a kung yeah. fu dungeon or a kung fu technique or a power, something like that. That's something that you can pretty easily put mechanics onto. But whenever you get into a complex social relationship that's still comprehensible to the people that are within it and allow you to make strategic maneuvers within it, like our villain does, he's a real social manipulator, that's something that's a little more sophisticated. Yeah. That requires like this, uh, this, this framework of being able to, like, put relationships in the context of them in some kind of like key. And it's hard. To, it's hard to map that in the way you can map a geographic location. So and like, it, uh, and it can get weird if you do it too much. Like if you if you the, if you if you mechanize too much of that stuff, it can actually create distance between the player and whatever it is they're supposed to have an emotional connection to. Oh yeah. Um, so because oh, it's one thing to give you an example of how mechanization can actually hurt you. This is something I played. I had a character in a, a classic D and D game who, who was a paladin, and his name was Terrell because it's a cool name. And shut up. <laughs> he was lawful good, and he kind of got lawful dark at a certain point. He became an inquisitor, and uh, it, at one point he was going to face. He was on the penultimate uh, encounter. It was the the mini boss before the main lich who we were trying to vanquish. And what happened was uh, we were playing in the third edition of Dungeons & Dragons and the GM whipped out this class, the Evangelist, I think it was called, who had a power where they talked to you and if you failed a will save, your alignment shifted to the opposite. So what happened was this guy who had been consistently role-playing as like this this ever-darkening paragon of good just became a gibbering psycho and just started killing his party mates in this penultimate encounter completely heel turning because he failed a roll like that wasn't a very satisfying conclusion to Terrell he died because of that by the way Uh, but that wasn't a very satisfying emotional conclusion to him because I lost all of my ability to actually role play the character because the mechanics decided that I was going to be a different character now well and and that's one of those things where I think that's certain mechanics have the danger of disrupting certain styles of play and so that strikes me as something where it's the sort of mechanic that it just didn't fit your style. Somebody else might have reacted a totally different way than you, 
but mm. but th- but for that reason i'm always wary i like i i'll give you an example like i'm i'm working on a wuxia game right now and uh you know and and me and the co-writer were going over some abilities we wanted and and obviously i don't want to do what i did in ogre i want to do something much more streamlined and a little more free form and focused on role play but i wanted to make sure a character like uh zudong lai was viable in the <coughs> game and so uh, and, and and just intelligent characters in general so i came up with an ability uh that sort of lets you retcon things like say you're pl- you know if you have this ability if you're talking to another character you know and the character drinks a cup of wine you can say oh well you didn't see that i poisoned that wine a moment ago when you were talking oh. with so and so and and there's there's usually a role to to make sure that the person didn't actually see it or whatever but it's a retcon and it's not going to work for a lot of styles of play do you know what i mean sure. and so uh, what i did was i tagged it as optional style because i knew <laughs> Some people are just not going to like it, and it's got to, you know, so the GM will probably need to approve it to let it in the game. Um, uh, Spirit of the Century did something similar to that. There's a power where you're a master of disguise, and so you can declare yourself in a scene in disguise as one of the NPCs in that scene, mm-hmm. and you just make the role, and if you do... Oh, I've, see, I've seen that mechanic, I think, yeah. in a few games, actually, because I, I yeah. unless I played a version of that game and didn't realize it, because I remember, I remember seeing that ability somewhere. Um, yeah, those kinds of things are always tricky. Because not everybody's uh, the, anything that's potentially immersion breaking or anything that's potentially style shattering for people is something you have to kind of consider. Um, yeah, we're still uh, as game players and designers. I think we're still developing a dialogue about what like talking about that stuff because I think it was. I think I came to you the other day when I was talking about like uh, I saw some thread on on like TG or something where they were talking about fourth edition. And there was a big argument that got uh, that happened in that thread, and both of the people that were arguing were really articulate and smart, or whoever many people look like to. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was watching it with great interest because I was like, oh, I, I had a dissatisfying experience with D and D fourth ed. I agree with this guy, and then as the the thing went on, I was like, because he kept the the guy who liked fourth ed kept calling him the task. He was like. Well, but why didn't you like that? Well, the, but how would you not be able to do that with different versions of the same game? And eventually the guy was just like, you know, you're right. I guess it is just a thing of taste. And I, I became defeated argumentatively along with that poster. I was like, oh, wait, he's right. Well, he, <laughs> there's, there's some dimension of taste there that is just hard to quantify. We don't have a good vocabulary for it yet. Well, here's what I say, because I, I, I was involved in the discussions around 4E when it came out, both in the live actual table I played at and online. And, 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 and there was sort of, it was sort of like a it was kind of like a rhetorical masterclass because eventually you did see sort of things like this kind of argumentation forming. I think what it, I think when it comes down to it, it's really hard to say for sure. Like all I know is I didn't like 4E. That's all I really know. And anything that I offer up as an explanation is just me attempting to explain it. Kind of like if I'm, I don't really know why I like, Hero shed no tears. I can give you my reasons, but <laughs> if you dissect those reasons, say, "Hey, but Brendan, you said you liked it because of the emotional resonance from this scene." But what about <coughs> that movie you said you hated ten months ago that did almost exactly the same thing? Like, you know, it's it's really difficult to uh, to understand why you like something and why you don't. And I think gamers like to um, uh, uh, to. Uh... No, we're, we're an analytical bunch. I'm sorry. We are an analytical bunch, and I think that maybe that there's a point of regression with analysis where we're kind of going below the threshold of why we ever really liked it. Like, I mean, in a very in a very brief way, I liked Hero Shed No Tears because it it 
brought me on a, 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 a emotional journey that I enjoyed in a way that was palatable to me and immersed me. That's the real reason I liked it. And you can do all the same stuff that Hero Shed No Tears did and fail to do those things for me as an audience member, and I won't like it. And no matter you can you could regress that analysis to the point where you're talking about the scene structure and the pacing and the characterization and the elements and even the things that happen, and you won't necessarily hit on why it had that impact. Yeah, no, because it's it's personal in some. (laughs) And just to get it back to the four E thing, I think I think I think what 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 was going on a lot is like we were really struggling to come up with like well I know I don't like this mechanic because it's jarring to me for some reason. And yeah. so, so one that came up a lot, and again, I'm not trying to rehash the four E battles because I really don't have no, any emotional it, investment in that worth, topic anymore. But it's it's worthwhile to talk about as far as like trying to articulate a, a language of talking about RPGs, though it's worthwhile in that. And, and let me let me preface it with saying that my old business partner Bill actually really enjoyed Fourth Edition, and I didn't. So we we had <laughs> we had a very frequent. Well, I mean, it wasn't like argumentative because we were friends, and you know, it went on long enough that we just had a conversation over a long period of time. But I got a better sense of what he didn't like or what he liked about it, and, I, and, and he got a better sense of what I didn't like about it. And I, I but I think with with something like fourth edition, people would uh, they might complain about like the ability come and get it. Do you know what I mean? Or they might say, I don't like that. Like the big thing for me, I think, was that all of the abilities were kind of set to like encounter um, daily and things like, and I, it just oh, yeah. seemed kind of weird to me. Um, it, it was, uh, I think it was Justin Alexander who articulated that as well. He had a, he had a special name for it. Well, he um, called it dissociated mechanic, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about how everything was keyed to that Vancey and X times per X or X times per Y. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So you had martial maneuvers that had a Vancey element to them for some reason. And, And, but that's exactly what he brought up in the disassociated mechanics discussion is that doesn't make any sense. How do you know factually in character that you can only do this maneuver one time before you rest to do it again? No, no. Yeah, no. And that's, and people can check out his argument if they want, but, but what I'm saying is slightly different. I'm saying that, for whatever reason, I didn't like that, right? And so, right. but in these conversations, people would say, well, but Brendan, you like the Barbarian, right? The Barbarian has rage X times per day. What's wrong yep. with the Barbarian? And there's no really good response <laughs> to that because there isn't anything wrong with the Barbarian. And Not so, really. And so I think I think what what I eventually realized and what, what, what often happens in these conversations is somebody, you'll say something, somebody will refute what you say and you will not have the response to what they say and you'll be okay. defeated. But it doesn't mean that your opinion is invalid or wrong. It just means that, it just means you don't know what the next step in that discussion is. What I realized is that it's not about the, um, it's not about just something being Vancean. Do you know what I mean? Because that's non-magical. It's about the quantity do you mean it's about you know this was this was something that was just sort of you know either isolated into magic in the system or occasionally popped up in certain classes here and there um Mm. that then became ubiquitous in the whole system and by making it ubiquitous it was just all you could see do you mean if you only saw it once in a while it's not a big deal and so i think i think one of the consequences of these kinds of debates is people will really latch on to an explanation that they find for themselves as to why they don't like something. Like they'll say, I don't like, you know, the dissociated thing or whatever it is, but that can become 
like it, because you're hyper aware of it now, it might bother you in a way it wouldn't have bothered you before. Do you know what I mean? Because it was really only an issue of quantity when you actually noticed it. You didn't notice it when it was the barbarian. You only noticed it when I did it to everything else in the system. So, so what I've been trying to do, and I don't know why we're talking about this at this point because we're kind of going off the rails a little bit. But no, what no, I've been trying to do in the talking about how you're introducing those kind of um those social mechanics okay. because. It, that that is a sticky topic, and this the whole the whole timber of this conversation is that you're right. There's some jarring element whenever you introduce yeah. certain kinds of mechanics to a game. How do you do it in a way that isn't jarring? How do you do it in a way that works tonally with the rest of the game? Where what are the zones you can really explore with that? And that, that's that's a huge topic. No, and so it's, it's easy to meander around in it. No, and, and actually what I was trying to say is now what I've been doing is I've been trying to get back to my natural gamer state. Like in, in martial arts, there's this concept of, of baby mind or child mind where you get back to that stage before you knew everything so that when you learn a new ability or technique or whatever, you are... Um, you're looking at it fresh and you're seeing it for what it is. You're not, you're not imposing like your, your, your karate concepts or your Muay Thai concepts onto it as you're learning it. Um, I feel like I, I'm trying to get back to that point with my gaming so that I'm not as affected by all of the discourses that have been happening online around it. Because I feel like the discourses have in many ways led me astray. And oh, yeah. when it comes to I things like, that, when it comes to things like social mechanics, increasingly I feel like we should just kind of not worry like I, I mentioned the style thing almost to say it shouldn't be as big of a concern all you really need to do is just point it out like hey this might be an issue but you can still have mechanics like this, that if you want to um, but but my taste for a movie like this is is to, to rely more heavily on tools than mechanics I think. I think I think techniques like GMing techniques and adventure structure techniques can be really handy for for making something like this a viable uh a viable adventure um, oh yeah absolutely and to to reference uh justin alexander again uh the way he looked at social encounters with uh, things like the three clue rule and node base prep and uh the conspiracy he quoted in from nice black agents like all of those are just techniques that a gm uses they aren't really mechanics in as yeah. much they're just strategies for making that prep something you can use quickly and intuitively while you're running. Yep. You're right. You can use those to make these things happen. Actually, one of the biggest uh, challenges I'm facing right now with writing Tianxiang is doing that uh, for all the content. So there's a unified... Uh, I want to have a unified conversation with GMs of the game where I'm talking about, like, okay, there's different kinds of content. Here's how you work it all and orchestrate it all together without getting overwhelmed. Because the problem I have a lot is just getting overwhelmed by the amount of stuff I want in the game. What I would say for a story like this is what you probably want, number one is you want to sort of, flat, what this movie has is like a really clearly drawn martial world. And, mm -hmm. and so you want to have a populated martial world where you know who all of the major sects are, who the sect leaders are, things like that, and what all of them want. And, 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 but at the same time, it's got this enormous simplicity because everything's being folded in to Sima Chow Chun's uh, escort company, right? So, like, that it's it's a uh, it's a very binary martial world. You have Sima Chao Chun and you have Zhu Meng, and and so it, it, it kind of simplifies things. But basically, you need to have this. You need to have these characters and the sex in place, but you also need a villain. Do you know what I mean? And so, 
I did something a couple of years ago, uh, actually with the person that I'm co-writing the Wuxia game with now, where uh, he played in one of my campaigns and he joined. And I think we both, he had actually translated the story of this uh, movie, uh, the original Gulong movie. He had translated it. It's available online at Wuxia World. And I was a super fan of the movie. And so that was the thing that we were talking about when he came into my campaign. And we had the idea of having him be the villain of the campaign in the style of Zhu Dong Lai. Um, and so he was a character named Hidden Arrow. And basically nobody knew he was really the villain. Do you know what I mean? He was just presented as a normal player character. And the whole time he was sort of scheming. And, and so, I, so I guess what I'm saying is recruiting a player as a villain is a really interesting way to get a Zhu Dong Lai type character going. You're not going to get the same exact result. You're not, you know, th- this movie relies on a very specific set of things happening. Um, and you're not necessarily going to get those specific set of things. But if you have a really powerful villain character embedded in the party and you have this conflict going on, I think it can lead to similar types of scenarios. Actually, it's fun It's fun you mentioned that because I agree with you. And I agree with you so much that uh, my writing of uh, uh, one of my games is based on that. Role-playing games are very cooperative exercises. So... At one point, I got this wild hair in my head that wouldn't go away, which was, well, what if it was competitive instead? And that has very slowly boiled into Parliament of Crocodiles, which is a game that borrows a lot, by the way, from the Chronicles of Amber game, where all of the players can cooperate. That actually helps them out a lot. But each one of them ultimately has what is basically a mutually exclusive goal to win the game. And so it's a a competitive role-playing game. No, Uh, I... Well, number one, there's there's a role playing game people might want to check out called Conflict Role Playing. Um, mm. That actually, it's more focused on the battle grid type stuff, but I think it also gets into the RP. And uh, I actually did contribute a little bit to it. Full disclosure, Ooh. when it first came out, but it's a it's an interesting RPG, and it uh it, it's a D twenty, and it's basically about you know having big battles between the characters. But I, I've I've run competitive style games. I now what I will say about competitive style games is you have to absolutely be sure everybody's bought into the concept. And yeah. and a lot of people will sometimes say they bought into the concept and not really be bought into the con. You know, they, it's more that they want to be agreeable. Yeah, I, I've been that guy. Yeah, so so, I'm not I'm not down on that guy, but don't be that guy. So so number one, Your don't advice. be that guy. But number two, I think if you're the GM. Check and make sure everybody's on board with it, and then look for signs that people aren't on board with it, even if they said they were. And as long okay. as you do those two things, I think your bases are covered. But if you do it and it works well, it can be really fun. I, I have one player who loves this kind of stuff, and so when the opportunity presents itself, I will happily run this kind of campaign. It's how I always run my crime network campaigns. And uh, But you can, run a, you can run a martial arts setting like that. And I think Heroes Shed No Tears would be a perfect example of of how to do that because you don't again the challenges if you're doing this specific scenario Sima Chao Chun and Zhu Meng very rarely are together so it doesn't you have to be a little bit more free flowing with time and space I think so that just so that you're not doing this thing where you're constantly at the mercy of well I'm going to travel up north now so nobody can do anything this whole time that I'm doing something um if the party is going to be effectively separated into two, two or three groups, you need yeah. to you need to figure out a way to make that work, and that's that's difficult. That I think takes oh, a yeah. lot of finesse and understanding your players, and so. Uh, but but I think I think again being um, 
what I here's what I do when I'm doing that. I have a timer and I give everybody 20 minutes. And, oh, I see. And and sometimes I get lazy with the timer. You know, like sometimes I'll 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 realize, oh, I didn't set the timer off. I better estimate how much time has gone by. Or I set the timer off and I look down and suddenly it's 35 minutes rather than 20 minutes. Um, I do that. Yeah. I, I hate timers for that very reason. I have kids and I time a lot of their like screen time and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I'll do the same thing. I'll get invested in doing my homework or something and I'll be like, uh-oh. <laughs> but here's the thing. It's not about the precise time. What matters is the fact that you are timing it and you're conscious of it. And so, yeah. you know, by and large, and, and also nine times out of 10, when I look down and it says 35 minutes, that's because it was so engaging and grossing. Nobody yeah. really cares. Almost, even if it only involves a few of the players and the GM, that's almost always a satisfying thing for the whole table because they're watching something that's engrossing and entertaining. Yeah. So, yeah, if, if it's that good, I, I wouldn't worry. I wouldn't be that strict with the timing myself because it's rare to get gaming that good. And when it does, you don't want some mechanical thing like timing to interrupt it halfway through. You want to you resolve it. You want to get the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. So, I No, I and, and so, you know, you, you, that's something that you would have to contend with. But you can definitely do it as a competitive thing where one char- one player is playing a Zhumeng type guy and one player is playing a Dong Lai type character. Another one is like a Simba Chao Chun. Another one is like a little Gao or a graceful character. You know what I mean? Those are really. I mean, there's there's also cleats. You 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 might want to have a cleats in there. Uh, the just a guy that's heroic, right down to the core. Um, you know, I like cleats. He's he was he was one of the best characters in the movie. Um, but but yeah, I mean, and that's basically a party, right? Like you have like what is that five characters? Um, mm-hmm. So I mean that that's a party right there, um, and 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 again, if 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 it's a struggle to do it the way it's done in this movie, where tremendous distance can sometimes exist between the characters geographically, you could just set it in a single city. That would be yeah, a very easy way. To, to, you have to make it sprawl like that. Yeah. As a matter of fact, the stuff you're talking about is all stuff I've been trying to find ways to address in Parliament, where like. And I, I think I've I've shown that to you as well. Where like geographically, I don't do hexes. I do like chunks mm. that have like certain things, and they they just interlock. And moving between them is a lot easier because it's not so detailed like it is in like D and D, where the exploration is a bigger element. Sometimes the maneuvering between those things is enough. And uh, rather than uh, linking it to time, I I link the amount of like spotlight people have to the resolution, the attempt to resolve a single goal. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to get into this house to break into the safe. Okay, getting into the house, that's one goal. Breaking the safe is one goal. Getting out is one goal. So you tell me how you do it. We approach it. You roll. Success or fail. Do the fallout. Bam. Now we switch the spotlight geographically sometimes an entire city away to someone else's turn. What are they trying mm-hmm. to do? Well, they're trying to get into this nightclub or they're trying to create this thing. So you can link it in more ways than just with time. You can also link it to resolution and in completely in-game actions. And you actually see that in board games, where you where a turn can have a variable length of time, but the things you resolve in the turn are all discrete, and there's a clear endpoint to them yeah. that lets the turn go, that lets the game continue uh, going around. I think too um, something else to consider is Hero Shed No Tears. It almost take like it takes place kind of close to the end of a campaign really do you know what i mean like yeah like uh like these like you can you can sort of crank this film into reverse and imagine all these characters that say like level one and 
And that's really where things would start. And so if you do that, then what you have is you have this setting where you basically just drop off a bunch of level one martial heroes and you you say, look, this campaign is all about rising to the top. Go, you know, become become the, the biggest master you can and, and defeat the competition. And if you do that, eventually you might end up at a point like you have in Heroes Shed No Tears. It'll, you know, like, like, for example, in my... Um, uh, uh, Bonebreaker campaign. I think it was, I can't remember what I called the campaign, but whatever. The, I, uh, it might have been my Disciples of Bonebreaking sect. I think it was the, it was the second big campaign I ran. I have a bunch of uh, logs of it on the, on the, on the blog page. But, but basically the characters were unleashed into the world and told to like, you know, rise as well as they can. And one of the characters ended up becoming uh, a, an important sect leader. So he became kind of like a Sima Chaochun, but it was complicated because he had a wife that was also the head of another sect that you know, he he sort of relied upon for things and not everybody was 100% loyal necessarily and most of the other members of his sect court were were player characters of various stripes. So whenever you have a situation like that it can, it's 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 really well suited for this kind of drama, I think. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it, again, that's something I, I'm going for in Parliament. I didn't mean to talk about my game a, sh- a pile. This, this no, that's podcast. okay. That's totally fine. This is the stuff that like I really that excited me enough to continue working on Parliament, which is going to be forever away. But like the idea that you just drop in really low level, and in, in Parliament's case, it's a bunch of monsters, vampires, and werewolves and such. But you drop someone like that into a big city with a lot of potential, and you're like, okay, the goal of the game is to become the biggest you know, king of the monsters in this city. Go. You're right. You you make things. You, you have to ad hoc solutions to the evolving tactical landscape. You have to bring together imperfect fusions of street gangs and dark magic and armies of sentient rats and all this stuff. And it makes a much more unique and a much. Well, it, it essentially customizes a, a, a game setting for you. Because like a lot of times you'll come into a game setting after it's already kind of accreted and become something a little more solid. And so the players are there just kind of enjoying what's already there. But when you have a hand in creating that, it, it makes a wonderfully a wonderfully textured kind of thing with a lot of uh, a lot of holes that that arise naturally. You know, oh, this guy, th- there's a secret entrance to this place that we forgot about because we installed it back then when we first made this and then we forgot about it later on. You know, oh, this guy's not really loyal because when he was brought in, we just had to pay him, and we've been paying him less and less as time goes on because we don't have as much of a use for him, but he's still in a position of power. All that stuff happens naturally as you just kind of haphazardly stitch together the Frankenstein monster of your organization as a player, and that gives the rival players, or even just a completely different third party, all these wonderful launching on points to attack the integrity. Sorry about that. Um... Yeah, that was my medication alarm. Um, that was the, the shill alarm. It means shut up, Joel. No, 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 that was that was my medication alarm. Um, but the uh, well, I think the thing about that too is that uh, players. I mean, players love building things. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, oh. it's it's really enjoyable to build up your own sect. And if you do, like that player character that had that sect of his own, that meant so much more to him. Than, than if I had sort of plopped him into a campaign where I said, boom, you're Zudong Lai, or I'm sorry, you're Sima Chao Chun, or you're, mm. you're you know, uh, uh, being handed a sect and having actually built up a sect and taken control of it yourself would, you know, just mean so much more. 
Um, yeah, with the hand in the creation of the history of the sect, it's extremely immersive and satisfying. Yeah, so so I, I would say, uh, you know, consider starting before the movie takes place. Like, like, mm. like instead of instead of saying, okay, we're going to do... I mean, you can do it. You can say, let's play Hero Shed No Tears. But instead, mm. what you can say is, okay, I want a campaign that is going to have all the groundwork to get to Hero Shed No Tears. Like, it's going to yeah. have all the foundations will be there. And, and, and again, I, I think it's, it's, always, uh, it's always a losing battle to aim exactly for what it is you're trying to emulate. Like, saying, okay, it's got to be exactly like Hero Shed No Tears. Don't do that. Just say, this campaign, I can see a Dong Lai emerging. I can see a Sima Chao Chun emerging. I can see the kind of conflict that's going on emerging. Maybe it'll be another kind of conflict, but whatever happens will be in the spirit of what is going on in Hero Shed No Tears. It doesn't have to be a perfect match. Um, yeah, I, don't think a, I think a perfect match is kind of like seeing a beautiful garden and then just making one of the paper that's a perfect replica. Like, it's not as good as yeah. just going and starting your own garden that won't be identical because at least you actually grew a garden. Yeah, no, yeah. and also it's, I mean, in the case of a garden, you know, my, my neighbor Vince, he might have... Uh, uh, a yard that's ideal for the type of garden that he has but then when I go and try to do it in my yard it just falls apart because I have like all these little hills and you know you know who knows like the the geography is different and so you uh, that's that's a good point too like different campaigns will grow in different soil and that soil is you and your abilities as a GM the system you're using the players you have the situation you're all going through like Different campaigns can blossom in different things, and it's. I think the best campaigns are the ones that blossom most fruitfully, not necessarily the ones that look exactly like the magazine. You know yeah. that 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 are coming to some preconceived idea you have of the perfect campaign. The perfect campaign is the one you play and have fun in. Yeah, know? no. In fact, I think I think the more pressure you put on yourself to have it perfectly be whatever, the the less fun it can often be. Because I mean, again, it's it's a game. You know, it's a game. So uncertainty is a factor. <laughs> And if you have uncertainty on the table, you don't know how things are going to go. So you can't say, oh, well, Dong Lai will definitely betray Sima Chao Chun and Die Wu will definitely cut off her leg and that will make Zhu Meng freak out. And then they'll have a big duel. You know, that's 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 getting into really heavy railroading territory if you're the GM yeah. or or it's like a rig system. Do you know what I mean? Like where no matter what you roll or what you do, it will result in legs getting chopped off. Yeah. getting I mean, and I think there's nothing wrong with b- baking in a degree of gravity that sort of encourages things to cur- go in that direction. But it should. Ne- I don't think it should ever be like this has to happen. Um, it's. I, I. I think that it's. It's better if you just sort of lean into whatever is going on at the table. Um, again, if if you know, you know, go after if you go after the spirit of what you're trying to emulate rather than the. You know the exact details. I think it's better off because I think there's a there's a really good spirit to Hero Shed No Tears that could be applied to any campaign. Um, and the way I tend to use these movies is when things are going on in my campaigns. You know, I in the players are taking actions. I start to see things and I'll be like, oh, this is kind of reminding me of this movie now. Maybe it would be interesting to think about that and applying some of the, you know, like some of the dynamics of that movie to, to this situation. Do you know what I mean? Like, like that's when I think you can start incorporating things like, oh, what if, you know, what if, um, uh, 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 
you know, what what if what if what if this character that they're putting all this pressure on all of a sudden pulls the da woo and 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 you know not necessarily cuts off her leg but does whatever she can or he can to spite all of the people that are putting all this pressure on them um you know like you you just start to see the opportunities that you might not see if you sort of you know find the uh you know find the connections to whatever it is that you're you're drawing on but i think it's like a it's like a it's like a gm vocabulary like you know you watch all these movies you read all these books and you get like a okay this is now the time to bring godzilla to the table do you know what i mean <laughs> this is now the time to, to to unleash the zombie apocalypse do you know what I mean like you you you, you know what you know it, it gives you resources and so that's that's how i would you know largely use a movie like hero shed no tears yeah it's it's too tightly plotted to try and recreate it exactly at the table but the the circumstances that gave rise to the things that are good about its plot, those are something you can bring to a table very easily, yeah. as long as you understand them. You know, strong emotional attachment um, that's that that very manipulative betrayal-based villain plotline, um, a lot of interconnected and interwoven uh, conflicting passions. All of that is something that you can easily bring. You didn't even have to do specifically a wushi game system to bring all those things into I mean because that's in a lot of ways that's Dune too yeah <coughs> that's Game of Bless Thrones you. Uh, no thank you no that stuff's good I mean um with uh with, with this I mean it would be very easy to flip it and be like okay Sima Chao Chun and Dong Lai they're NPCs in the martial world and that organization is spreading everywhere and the player characters are part of another organization that is being encroached upon by this one that's trying to dominate the martial world and that could be an interesting that would be a really easy way to game it because that doesn't require that anything specific happens it just you know it just uses the premise of the movie as a sort of uh prem as a sort of background for your martial world and uh, and it kind of bakes in the conflict of of the film uh, oh, yeah. um, but it, but but the players could just go off and you know loot tombs or something if they really wanted to um it's it's nice to have just a couple of dungeons scattered in there on top of that because your players will get bored yeah. and they'll want to stab some goblins let them do it <laughs> it's but, okay uh, but yeah I th- I th- so you know i think that would be another way to do it um but but again and, and also the box the box is something you could totally rip and, and how, into how would it. you do the box i'm curious i want i want the box to be a thing in games i, I don't mean, know how i think i've never done the box itself i've done um I've done devices like it. Like if you look at the crocodile sect book that I did for the sex of the martial world, there's a bunch of te- there's one of the guys in there is like a really good weapons engineer and weaponsmith. And he designs all these mechanical weapons that have special features that surprise your foes when you use them the right way. And, and so that's in the spirit of the box, but it's not the exact box um, for the box. I think number one, it's the kind of weapon where you can give it a little bit more power because it has this basic requirement that you have to be super agile and dexterous and you have to be intelligent to even use the thing. So like it's this good to use the box. Yeah. So like I might even say like, okay, the box requires, so in ogre gate, it, it requires a speed and a reasoning role in order to even, to even use it. 
You know what I mean? Like every time you use this weapon, you have to make a successful roll for each of those. And then if you do, you get the weapon that you need, which will maybe give you a small bonus against the foe that you're fighting. Do you know what I mean? Like maybe it's a, an extra wound or maybe it's a bonus to an attack or maybe it protects your defense. I think it would have to, I think you'd have to kind of have floating bonuses that depend on the circumstances. Do you know what I mean? Because that's a box that produces a specific new weapon to deal with a very specific threat. And so depending on what that is, you would want to have wiggle room to apply the bonuses differently. Yeah, I could put it beyond bonuses, though. Like, I would almost want to run it like I'd run a puzzle in a game, like, as far as, like, the opponent. Because, like, it has that same element where, like, the, the last thing they do with the box is they make this kind of, like, sword-grabbing, like, man-hook weapon thing. Mm. And it's specifically designed as a sort of, like, puzzle trap where yeah. it has all the, these, like, like elements that are, that are puzzle elements to it. And that's because they don't have a long time to analyze this, uh, the, it, it, it's instrumental in beating the main bad guy. It actually, uh, they, they use they use the lure of its clever trap nature to make certain it gets in his hands yeah. so, it be, so its weakness that they also built into it can be exploited to kill him, which they do. So... Well, I think... Oh, go ahead. And, well, the, the puzzle element of that is beyond just bonuses and, and rolls. That's an actual puzzle element that's a move and counter move that exists like just in the description of the weapon but that's beyond just the empirical aspect of it but that's why i was leaning on floating bonuses and doing it mm -hmm. by circumstance because i was kind of saying that like if like and it depends on how much your players engage it but basically whatever they try to pull out of there if they're very specific like that then i think you should let them you know you kind of it's a situation where it's like a very much a rulings over rules type of weapon where you really need to be able to say okay this is what you're trying to do here's the effect i think that is going to have if it's successful do you know what i, I mean thinking about the last weapon cuz that, that is the the ultimate weapon that eventually vanquishes the villain it's the only way they actually outsmart him you would have to make it so that it it can capture weapons and it can yeah. attack you if you try to get the weapon but also, there's a secret release catch yeah. that allows you to uh, to get a surprise attack on them if they use it, yeah. and they're invested in it in this one particular way. Like, so that that last part, the first two parts, I think you can do just do mechanically. Yeah. That very last part, though, is is descriptive. Like, you might make it so there's a role they can use to like like a detect traps kind of role to, to note that it does that. But like. That, that very last bit, that very last actually clever twist is something that isn't just purely mechanical. You see what I mean? Well, you could you would let him get a detect roll to see the thing. And then mm. if he doesn't succeed, I, in, the, in my game, I would give them a surprise attack, which would... Yeah, that's what I would... The, yeah, and the damage would go from being a closed roll to an open roll, which is a massive increase. And that would oh, yeah. explain why it would be so easy to kill him. Oh, um, hey, I actually know what you're talking about now because I've been reading over here. That's, <laughs> that's cool. That's a nice change of pace. Yeah, so, so, but that's how I would handle it. Again, but but I think the key is you, you can't you don't know what the players are gonna number one, your players have to be super intelligent to come up with that particular <laughs> one. And and you have to be very generous in uh, in meeting them halfway to make it actually work, I suppose. But because that was a very perfect situation. Let's assume that's all the case. You're never going to know that in advance, so you, you're not going to have like an hour to come up with all the details of the weapon. So at every individual step, you're going to have to say, okay, when, when he uses it to poke the guy's hand, 
it does X amount of damage and they have to make a roll or they, you know, just flinch and release it or something. And, you know, th those kinds of things. You have to just kind of each step apply. This is what I think it would do. And and I think I think that's fine. I mean, for some people might they might be upset that, you know, you're throwing this stuff into the ether that might never actually return again if the identical circumstances were met. But I feel like the purpose of it is for the GM to kind of act as a physics engine in that moment. And so yeah, I think you kind of have to, or at least uh, to make a, a ruling that's consistent with what you would expect. Yeah, uh, yeah. That, that, speaking, going back to the, the conversation on the fourth, that that was a thing that was brought up in that conversation. Is in the, the they highlighted this thing where in a lot of online argumentation, the assumption seems to be that your GM is a real jerk and does everything yeah. they can to kill you, and like the guy who was arguing against fourth was like, well. That was never an assumption back when I played. We should have an assumption that your GM is basically reasonable whenever we have these arguments. And I was like, oh, that, that's actually a good point to make. Well, so, I think – no, no. And, and I think uh, just to get back on that, I suppose, you know, that was something that I definitely noticed when 4th edition came out. The people who liked it were often the people that had unsatisfying experiences with 3rd edition and some of its excesses. And mm -hmm. and also the a lot of it depended on, you know uh, – how how uh, how your group handled certain things, and if the, if you know GM ran a game a certain way, maybe certain frustrations emerged that didn't emerge in another campaign. I mean, I think we all kind of know the lessons of of that of that whole period, which is every campaign and every group kind of plays the thing differently. And you you know, I think when they released Fourth Edition, I think what happened was I remember them putting that out and saying this is absolutely the best edition of the game ever. Do you know what I mean? And when they yeah. said that, I remember believing that that was going to be the case because I didn't I, like I was a little bit more myopic at the time, maybe. Um, <laughs> and and then when it came out, I remember looking at me like this isn't what I wanted, it, like because I was also dissatisfied with third edition. Like there were things <laughs> about it I didn't like, but I wanted those things fixed. I didn't want a completely new game. So I guess my take home from that whole period is, you know, you you got to you it's 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 very it's very difficult to sort of navigate what you're talking about because every every group is so different in terms of you know why they play the game and what problems they have at their table and in terms of what mechanics are going to be a problem for them do you know what I mean for some oh, yeah. people third edition had all kinds of issues that just produced nothing but you know frustration and debate at the table and for other people third edition was the best thing since sliced bread and for few others you know it was something that you could you know when you when you threaded the the needle the right way it worked perfectly fine you just had to be mindful of some of the potential issues that could come up in the game and so uh it's i think part of it is a question of how perfect do you want a game to function without human intervention do you know what i mean yeah and not everybody's on the same table when it comes to that some people want a functional system that has some rough spots that the GM can kind of, you know, like yeah. And then some people would be fine with an optional GM where the mechanics are the end all be all of how the game functions. Yeah. So the need for rulings is greatly diminished. And I don't want to say that either approach is really invalid because like I play board games. Those don't have a GM. Those are fun. But I would say that I come to role playing games because they have GMs. And because yeah. they because they have a GM, they invite that that humanizing element of rulings, 
which you cannot, and you can't do the same things in a board game you can do in a role-playing game because you you do have a human being there you can talk to and reason with. Yeah. And the two broad assertions, because that that's an acknowledged fact of role-playing games that differentiates them from board games. But the assumption for a long time has been like, or at least online in argumentation in places like uh, the Giant in the Playground forums where there's a lot of like kind of uh, mechanical talk and a lot of mechanical metagame talk. The assumption becomes that your GM, if they do something beyond the scope of the rules when you're role-playing, that's something that can't be entered into these discussions. And the reason for that is because it's an X factor that you, because it varies so much between tables, like you said, there's no real way to predict how a GM is going to react to you proposing something. Like, I push over this big rock can be ruled like, okay, you push it over and it falls. Or it could be make a strength check, or it could be make three strength checks and then make a save to see if you fall. It, it just depends on how your GM wants to interpret it and how that manifests at that and, table. And some players will get really hung up on the, you know, they'll really be like maybe super critical of the GM and some people won't. And I mm. feel like a lot of it boils down to how much do you trust another person's ability to make these kind of calls. And my whole approach to play is if Rob is running the game, I trust Rob's judgment to, to do that. I don't worry, oh, that's not how I would have done it. Or, oh, yeah. you know, he's forgetting about this important law of physics that should be applied. You know, I don't worry uh, yeah. about that. I just say, okay, we're in Bob's world and this is how Bob runs reality for us. And if I'm playing in Adam's game, I... You know, it's going to be different than Rob's game, but I know that this is how Adam does things. And this is, you know, and so either way, at the end of the day, what you end up with is a fairly consistent world because the GM is always going to be using their brain that, you know, that, that they have. So, I mean, like, you know, Rob is always going to be thinking in Rob terms and Adam's always going to be thinking in Adam terms and Brendan's always going to be thinking in Brendan terms. So even if it's not, you know, what everybody else would do, it's always going to be what brendan would do or always going to be what rob would do so yeah i think uh because we're a little older and we i think our groups are pretty stable about who we game with there's there's not this sort of like casual i don't know the people i'm gaming with element that like, we don't have to deal with that you and yeah. i but i think that does exist i think there's a, a a much larger chunk of people gaming now that don't like do anything aside from game with the people they're gaming they're not just mm. friends on top of that because back whenever we started gaming, it was these are your friends, and then you play a game. Yeah. Nowadays, it can get turned on its head where you meet someone because you go to their game that they've advertised, and but, so your first interaction with them. But is that's the game. but here's the thing that's happened to me. Like my friend Rob, that's how I met him. I met him through gaming. You know, he was looking for a Savage Worlds group, and I I think I responded to something he posted. But we mm. became friends. Do you know what I mean? Like mm. I think. Uh, that's how I always approach this. I don't. I'm not just there to game with you. Do you know what I mean? I'm not. I'm not just there to play because you're a body that's willing to move a piece on the <laughs> table. I'm there to play because number one, I want to play a game, but also I like to play games with people that I like and people that I can be friends with. So yeah. I feel like maybe there's a stylistic difference that some people have there, and I don't know if it's generational or not. Um, but for me, it's you know I I need to, I generally need to play with people that I consider myself friends with or capable of being friends with um and and the moment i play at a table i don't like i just don't come back to it that's you know yeah so you the vote with your feet i think is what they call that well, well well i mean i'm not rude about it like you know but i've been to like games at stores and stuff where i was like yeah you know this group is doing things in a way that i just wouldn't do them and i'm not gonna continue coming here do you know what i mean like uh 
I, I think, you know, it's, it's, the way I look at it is your time is precious. Um, so don't waste your time. But also don't, like, I don't know, like sometimes when I see these debates online and people really sort of get upset about a GM ruling or whatever, I, I feel like you got to be a little flexible. You know what I mean, you got to be like, a li- like uh, an ounce of flexibility is important in, in, in a hobby like this assume good faith on people's part unless they're really being jerks about something like like a, like I've, I've i've had gms that have you know they were sitting there sharpening their pencil and 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 and, and eager to 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 just you know make everybody miserable but those are rare people i haven't met many people like that uh, i i've only encountered a few but that's the thing i will game with them all of once or twice because yeah. as soon as they get really vicious i'm not having fun and I'd find some other way. To, I, I can play Mario Kart and have fun, dude. I don't got to be in your D and D game. Yeah, I'll find something else to do. I've got, I got, I've got two giant shelves full of books over here. I will find a way to be entertained, dude. I, I'm not gonna sit and do something that makes me miserable. But, so, um, yeah. but, but, but speaking of, which, we've been on uh, for an hour and a half now, so oh. I think we should probably end the episode here. Uh, what, uh, any, any parting thoughts on gaming or on Heroes Shed No Tears before we, uh, before we head out? Uh, the the biggest parting thought I think that I've had from the kind of blossom out of this whole uh, conversation that we had about gaming is that the, make fertile soil, uh, make you make fertile soil and use good good seeds and good gardening techniques to grow a good garden. Whether you're making a really good movie or trying to run a really good game, understand what the elements that encourage those good things happening are, and then let the good things happen naturally and just guide them only when appropriate. So that's my parting thought for this whole thing. Okay, my parting thought is going to be a plug, which I think is fair because <laughs> we've been going for an hour and a half, so how many people will actually you know, hear the plug? <laughs> but uh, I have a, a free book called The Tournament of Dalu, and I would recommend it to people based on this conversation because it's a setting where it's done in a city, but it's a similar type thing where there's all these different power groups, and the premise is the players sort of wander into the city and rise through the ranks of the city in the you know the local martial world um presumably being criminals um so i, th- I think that you could have a um a similar type of campaign uh using some of the material from that book and it's free you don't have to pay a dime for it or actually is it free yeah i'm pretty sure it's free i i, I think i think it's a pay what you want but um, I like, all my stuff is pay what you want too in fact you hey. know what hold on let me let me check so i don't like lie on yeah, air yeah. about uh about one of my own products that I should know the price of. Um, I've only got one, so I can't, I can't hold you that. You've got like a, quite a few out there. Um, yeah, but this one's only a couple of years old. I should really, I should really know the answer to this one. Um, I, don't, I don't even remember what I wrote in the current draft of Lone Wolf Fist that's out there for sale. Like so, and that's been less than a year, and my only product. So, so don't feel bad. So it's it's pay what you want. The suggested price is four ninety nine, so I'm happy to take that if anybody wants to pay that. But it's yes. pay what you want. Um, Almost and, every time I get actual money coming in to uh, the Lone Wolf Fist, a lot of people just kind of grab it to check it out. Every time I get money coming in, it's usually like five, ten, fifteen bucks. Like people actually put down a good chunk of change on it. And uh, it, that, like, speaking as a guy that takes that money and turns it into more books and art and things like that, it really helps, folks. No, it does. It does. It's, it's, it, 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 I mean, that's that's largely what it pays for, you know, um, especially with a book like this. Also, a lot of it goes to the my, my co-author in the book. I, I pay him royalties for that one. So um, but uh, but yeah, so uh, so again, 
it's Heroes Shed No Tears. It's a really good movie. It's on Amazon. You can also read the story at Wuxia World, and it's translated by Deathblade there. And I really enjoyed that version of it. I, you know, I, I'd, I'd never read it in Chinese, obviously, so I don't have a point of comparison, but I enjoyed reading the translation. And I would highly recommend it. What I would recommend is watching the movie first, then maybe checking out the story, because you'll have sort of like a visual to hang all of your 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 names on and everything. Um, so I think that's a good good way to go about it. Um, and yeah, so so we'll be back on. I think our next movie is supposed to be depends on if we can all get a copy uh, a Chinese ghost story, um, which I'm look you know really looking forward to to covering again. Um, yeah, trying to wine and dine David Ramirez and to come in and talk him with us. It's been a little difficult. He's he's had some because he's a dual citizen of uh, China and Mexico. Like there's there's a lot of stuff he has to deal with. Mm. So he's currently dealing with some of it. But yeah, I'm trying to wine and dine. Is he him. residing yeah. in China or is he residing in Mexico? I think he resides in in China and then he will consistently visit Mexico. And so I, like he's so much bureaucracy the guys get to deal with. Is it? I've heard it's getting harder to uh, to reside in China as a foreigner too. Ooh, he has a lot to say about it. So, yeah, I mean, things are changing better. there, from what I've gathered. Things are changing quite a bit. Um, so, uh, so yeah. So, on that note, I suppose we will uh, <laughs> we will head out, and I think uh, we still have another episode of Doctor Who to cover, uh, probably on Wednesday or Thursday, hopefully, and then on. Friday, I think we're doing Flying Swords of Dragon Gate in. I know that we were supposed to do it like two weeks ago and then the week after. I got confused with the schedule and there were some cancellations. So last week we did another movie um, and this week I think we're doing Flying Swords of Dragon Gate. Uh, but don't don't hold me. And, uh, and Alright, until then we will talk to you later.